All right, well, welcome, gentlemen. Welcome to the integral stage, everyone. Um, this conversation was sparked by an almost throwaway comment that I made in our last conversation when I mentioned mandalic thinking. And I remember we paused around that, and it, it seemed like something worth exploring a little bit more deeply. And I can't imagine two better people to explore it with, so I'm looking forward to this. So I'm thinking we can approach today's conversation in at least three broad movements. And of course, I'm open to other angles that you want to bring in, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But I'll lay out my general proposal first, and I'll briefly outline the three movements and then say a little bit about the first one. Uh, so to start, I would suggest that we can approach the topic literally, you know, talking about mandalic forms of thinking and symbolic representation, ritual and uh, spiritual practice, you know, say in Tantra and shamanism, for instance. And I think it's definitely worth our time to, to go into these things in some depth and to think about, you know, what they look like from our integral or Cynthia's perspectives. And I'll, I'll come back to that in just a little bit. And for the second movement or phase, I'm imagining broad metaphorical or analogical extensions of mandalic thinking, just as higher order styles or patterns of holistic or vision logic cognition. For instance, we might look at approaches which practice a kind of perspectival circumambulation, or more subtly, we might look at approaches which involve a, a participatory intuitive grasp of unfolding holistic gestalts. And, and there could be other examples, other styles that we can look at that have mandalic echoes. And then for the third movement or phase, I, I think we could take a step back and offer some critical perspectives on mandalic thinking, you know, especially those which maybe could seem to enact a kind of hegemonic holism, maybe in, you know, spiritually escapist forms of, of uh, holistic thinking or in uh, philosophically overmining approaches, as Morton and other object-oriented ontologists talk about. Um, so yeah, for me, Edgar Moran, Sloterdijk, Henri Bortoft, Timothy Morton, these kinds of people would be good allies in that kind of exploration. And maybe for a fourth phase, we could get a little weird and, and look at the interfaces or prepositional adjacencies of between mandalic thinking and mandalic patterns and entheogenic visions, cymatics and uh, esoteric teachings on uh, spiritual vibration, um, you know, Shiva's spanda, things like that. So that's my proposal for the three broad movements that we might look at. And in a minute, I'll check in with you and see if there's anything else that you'd like to bring in and other angles. Um, I think there's other things that I'm, I'm thinking of too that, that will probably pop up at different places in our conversation. So for the first phase or the first movement, I'd like to just start off with a couple observations. Um, in his Globes book, Sloterdijk offers a, a powerful meditation on a mosaic from Tori Annunziata. It features seven elderly gentlemen gathered around and talking animatedly and, and seemingly in awe or wonder, beholding this sphere in a, in a box, a sphira, a representation of the, the earth and the heavens, uh, the whole of existence that's in a box that uh, one gentleman is pointing at. And as Sloterdijk points out, this is 
maybe representative of a moment in which we realize that we are an inseparable part of the whole that we are observing. We're participatorily immersed in that wholeness. And so it, it really changes our perspective on things. And in tantric and shamanic mandalic representations and practices, there's of course also this sense of wholeness and deep participation in, in things, in life, in the energy of life. And mandalas and medicine wheels both point in the four directions and encompass the whole expanse of existence. Etymologically, mandala means either a concentration of energy or a circle or sphere. La in mandala means to take up or hold. So some Tibetan commentators remark that mandala can mean the energy which sets up a reign of meaningfulness. Ma can also mean beautiful and la can mean beautified. So another way to, to look at it could be mandala means a resplendent foundation. Medicine wheels in, in Native American tradition, they, they speak of the medicine wheel path as a path of walking in beauty. So there's a nice resonance there. But the appeal to beauty and to energy is important, I'd suggest also for one other um, commonality that you can find between tantric and shamanic approaches. And that's uh, not only is a mandala or medicine wheel representative of wholeness, but both forms of practice involve what we could say, and based on our earlier conversations, um, a kind of adjacency work, a blending and intensification of the overlap between the gross and subtle realms. In the generation and uh, completion stages of Tantra, for instance, you visualize your body as a mandala or your body as the deity or yidam, and then the whole surrounding world as the mandalic, you know, the mandalic realm. And our, our murky, heavy thinking and self-sense is transformed into luminous deiform energy. Um, this leaks then into ordinary non-practice experience and body and world are held more lightly, more luminously with a, a, both a, a sense of dreamlikeness, but also I would say greater aliveness and, and, and participation. And shamanic approaches from, from what I've experienced of them don't work quite in a, as a systematic a way but they nevertheless do affect the same kind of blending with the combination of, of this, the different kind of uh, sand painting and, and medicine wheel work, and then the underworld journeys uh, and the encounters with, with different imaginal or underworld forms, which then emerge to, to populate and story the landscape um, so that in both practices, you end up situated in a, you know, a re-enchanted um, space that, that blends the gross and the subtle with a new intensity. You could say the, the completion phase in Tantra, which, you know, arguably is really just greater awareness of the development phase as a process, involves some important insights that you don't find in, in shamanism. Um, that lead to a kind of construct awareness, um, a, a kind of a deeper, it, it, it involves you in a kind of deconstruction of the imaginal realm um, that you enact so that you don't get hooked 
necessarily by the imaginal displays, but it involves you um, much more in a kind of process orientation. So we can come back to that later. I just wanted to, to touch yeah, on Can it. I just ask a question there to clarify for the listeners? Uh, sure, sure. How do you define Tantra and shamanism here? So we, if we keep the two concepts separate. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just basically with that last sentence I made, I was reaching the end of, of my overview. So I think that's something good that we could, you know, open up to talk together. For me, I'm looking, um, I think there is a continuity, especially because I've, I've trained mostly in the uh, Tibetan Bun tradition. I've also studied in the Nyingma tradition um, for, for many years. But in the Bun tradition, there's a clear lineage between the shamanic and the and the magical and then the emerging tantric and, and Dzogchen. And they're all part of like a nine vehicle path. So there's not a sharp break, especially in the Bun context. But for the purposes of the points I was making earlier, I was thinking of shamanic practices mostly as the kind of the practices we find among indigenous peoples around the world and the Americas and, and elsewhere um, that typically there, there's a huge variety, but there are some overlaps in terms of, you know, ways of working and situating with the, the medicine wheels and the underworld journeys and things like that. And for Tantra, I'm specifically thinking of what you could call the, the third turning in Buddhism, um, the Vajrayana schools, or in, in Hinduism also with the Shaivite traditions and some related traditions uh, where they're more the esoteric um, schools of thought involving magical or alchemical kinds of elements. Yeah, I'm asking this question because I think it's important to stress that I've explored this together with Andrew Sweeney and Thomas Hamerick in, in our trialogues. Uh, and um, we've also explored the Persian and Chinese tantric traditions. And it turns out that we're, we're pretty certain that this is something that arises in written language. So it, it's the fact that you could settle semi-permanently or permanently, but you actually can write down a tradition. And of course, the first thing you would do if you write something down is you would actually claim a lineage. And, and it would probably be a proper lineage too. So you inherit something from previous generations and you add on top of that. So you can therefore establish a knowledge that is no longer just memorized. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think what we could probably refer to here, if you, if you agree with that, we could refer to the, the purely shamanic traditions as the ones that are, are tied to a nomadic language where everything has been memorized. And mm -hmm. the, the only thing you could ever write down is basically cave painting. <laughs> <laughs> but but other than that, everything has been memorized. And because it has been memorized, it is more circular and there's, of course, a less, lot less information involved. But I think other than that, I think it's exactly the Sutric and Tantric traditions in the East that actually are the closest to what we call shamanic traditions now. And I think also if we study, for example, the Americas and we discover the rich traditions of Peru and Mexico, uh, they were, of course, heavily psychedelic and shamanic, certainly, and how they were they pushed down by the Catholic Church when it arrived in the Americas. And it's only taken until the last, say, 50 to 100 years before these traditions to resurface. And they're then terrified of being written down <laughs> because they associate being written down with being Catholic. Mm -hmm. And it's only in the syncretic traditions that I've explored, at least in Peru and Mexico, that I discovered that people now proudly started writing about these traditions. And we're finally seeing the birth of something that I would call an American Tantra. 
coming out of these traditions because of it. So it's could be, it could be interesting to just take that theory and extend it further. And this involves our listeners too, that it could be, it could be interesting to just explore tantric and shamanic in the sense that we think of tantric as something we've started developing, added to tradition, added knowledge to tradition. We're all contributing to it. Whereas the shamanic practice is something we go and see the shaman directly. And all the only information you've got available is your own experience, the shamanic experience itself, and whatever you can memorize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to bring the the modes of communication into that story. Uh, when I think of Tantra, I normally think of full spectrum embodied extensions of the Dharma, but that implies there's already a Dharma tradition somewhat codified to build that on. And when I think of shamanism, I think of a more uh, pre-cultural or extra-cultural, ecological, embodied, it, almost improvisational approach, where you're just generating the beginnings of any tradition. Uh, for me personally, you know, shamanic traditions are already sort of failures to be shamanism in a way. They're a calcification of the of the shamanic art, which is the art of producing the origins of tradition, which I think is really important when we start to think of the planet as a as a village, as a space where there's going to be traditions for human beings on the earth that calls forth a need for uh, an archaic revival of the shamanic art, because we have to start up the beginnings of a tradition for that culture space. But we can really see it brought forth in, like you were saying, in the syncretic fusion and extension of traditions that we associate with Tantra. Um, I love listening to Bruce talk about this stuff. I was sitting there listening to it. Go, I could listen to this just for a couple hours. This is a terrific. I would go to this course. <laughs> uh, if I had to say something general about mandalas at the beginning, uh, I guess I would say I think of them as a staging of hyper reality. Right, uh, mandala is a strategy for organizing our experience, but. Uh, what's really interesting to me is that we don't come across this strategy at random. It's sort of, it grows out of having seen it somewhere before. For me, it's a reproduction of the implicit architecture of the peak experience. So we have these more or less spontaneous moments where the world seems to be working properly. And when we try to deconstruct the elements that made up that experience, it turns out it is an omnidirectional a thematized set of qualitative functional dimensions that are co-present and coordinated and mutually supportive uh, to the point where they're collectively overflowing with a kind of nourishment that feeds something deep in whoever's standing or sitting enthroned at that center point. So to me, that's a kind of organic architecture or machinery to it that is an attempt to replicate the experience of our best moments. I agree. I should. I just want to add here, maybe a little critique. Maybe it's a bit early, but um, and it comes with a problem with the West. We're obviously talking about very Eastern concepts here. Both tantra and shamanism are either either from the Americas or more specifically from Asia. So, and the reason why that is, I think, is because we had incredibly efficient religions that were developed in the West. And with the West, I call the Middle East and eventually Europe and, and of course, North America, as we know today. And, and, and these traditions dominated by Christianity and Islam were traditions where the religions were focused on efficiency for the power structures that existed. It doesn't mean that we're bad in any way whatsoever. What we're talking about here is that how the West developed compared to the East. 
And even if there have been esoteric traditions in the West, there certainly have been a lot of those too. They've been marginalized, marginalized again and again and again, and, and put on the side. For example, uh, uh, the, the sort of very negative general attitude regarding the West towards psychedelics and psychedelic experiences is a result of that. It, it belongs to tradition of the West that we sort of need to get rid of. And that tradition becomes is there because these religions were incredibly efficient in implementing an agricultural society with a very feudal power structure. And eventually they try to update themselves to catch up with the capitalist society with a very industrialist power structure too. And the reason why we sort of lost faith in these religions the way we have, and there's now a constructive critique within Christianity and Islam, I certainly believe we could both see an Islamic Renaissance and a Christian Renaissance. I don't count that out at all. And neither do Sweden and Hamburg in our work. But I would say it's problematic for the West, and that's exactly why we go to these traditions in the East, to try to explore shamanism and tantra properly. But we're doing it now with the global scope in mind. So we're sitting as three Westerners going on this journey, but it's not an exotic journey. We're not exoticists at all. We're not doing this because there's something other on the other side of the river that, that we're being drawn into. We're doing this properly because... All we can do in the West is go back to pagan traditions before that and try to get out of that. Nietzsche did that, for example. When Nietzsche explored Apollonian versus Dionysian, what he meant with that was that there's a certain life that has been lost in the West that he was trying to explore. And then after Nietzsche in the 20th century, we started exploring the East and discovered that many of these sort of Nietzschean traditions, in my case, I went all the way to Zoroastrianism and converted to the religion that Nietzsche promoted. And, and I think that, is, that explains why, we're, why the three of us are so interested in digging into the East in this case. Yeah, I think paganism is a really interesting uh, midpoint in all of this because it shows people in the West something that actually is implicit in our experience, but got filtered out by the political utility of, of the big monotheistic cultures. Uh, when I think about like paganism, I think of it as what I call mythocolloquial, which is that it's actually nested in our everyday experience of reality. So that when we say, oh, they believed in Zeus or Quetzalcoatl or Aphrodite, those are words that we're not translating into our language, right? We talk about war and love and nature just as they did, but we don't experience it with the mythic resonance that we imagine that they experienced. So we're missing the resonant elements uh, that we would make a mandala out of, yet they are present in the pagan dimension of our everyday experience. We just have a really hard time seeing that and digging it out. Yeah, and if you do that the wrong way, you get guys like Hitler and Stalin. Yeah. Who were both terrible neo-pagans, and they were neo-pagans in the sense that they didn't care at all what paganism was. Yeah. They just took something, they exoticized their own pre-Christian origins and took them and vulgarized them. And then of course, presented that as Nazism and Stalinism. And if you read Nietzsche carefully, this is important here. If you need Nietzsche carefully, he would have hated Hitler more than anything else. Sure. And, he, and even Karl Marx would have hated Stalin. But that's exactly what happens to these guys with the jump out of these things. And that's why we need to tread very carefully into this territory before we discover and return to paganism and see what we can find there. The thing I like about uh, the Christian critique of the pagans, so to speak, is the notion that there is a next step in terms of clarifying your living religiosity. Because I think in my way of thinking, essentially everybody is a pagan already. They're plugged into those energies, right? If it's sunny and I go and have a barbecue, I mean, that guy's a sun worshiper. But it doesn't rise to the level of 
a, a clarified, coherent experience that can be brought forth collectively in a balanced way. So I think that, like you're saying, that step is absolutely essential because if you have an imbalanced return to paganism, uh, you just get a loss of all the things that are holding society together. I agree. And my word for this is nomadology. I'm taking it from Jill Deleuze, but I present nomadology as the opposite of eventology. And I'd like to go back to Bruce here. And, and, yeah. and, and can you describe for you, Bruce, your own personal journey, for example, and how you arrived at mandalic thinking, and which I, which I at least term nomadology, and, and see what you got out of that when you started researching that? Sure. I'd like to hear what you mean by nomadology. I, I, and you threw out another word, uh, mandalology, which uh, we'll, we'll look at that. Um, Okay, I can just explain it though so the listeners are involved in. Sure. Nomadology, historically now speaking in hindsight, is the idea that there's a circular mode that is the fundamental mode of reality. Okay, so even in physics these days, we're more and more talking about uh, there was uh, an event, a big event, whether it was a big bounce or big bang, we don't know. But if we take the, the universe and take hundreds of billions of years into the universe, it will probably either dissipate and we'll have another bang or, or, or it will just implode. And we don't know which either. So maybe all the reality really is circular in the fundamental sense. But the idea that we add the event into the history of ideas about 3,700 years ago, which is quite recent, because of permanent settlement, written language, and the development of civilization, means that there's an alternative to that. And in the East, there's never been an opposition between process and event. Process and event have always been discussed with Easterners as two different modes of being. And maybe one is being and one is becoming. We could discuss that later, but you have process and event. So I use the word eventology as the opposite of nomadology here, or you could say event as opposite of process. Mm. But to me, at least, mandala is the perfect symbol of process. It's a perfect symbol of the circle and returns all the time. And it has to be, like, like, like Lehman just said, we have to understand ourselves as fundamentally tribal and pagan. Mm. And any ideas we have on top of that are completely dependent on the tribal and the pagan. And of course, it's quite obvious these days that these ideas have to return to our mindsets simply because we now live with one planet. We're stuck on this planet and we're, we're about to destroy it. And unless that, that specific process is stopped on the way and we can return to some kind of sustainability and the resilience, there won't be any human life left. So this is, this is precisely, you know, the arrival of the Gaia concept and, you know, the first, the first pictures of the green and blue planet from outer space that came in the 1950s. Heidegger wrote about that experience, like how he's striking for him as an old man, that we've never seen anything like that before. And how cold and huge space was outside of this planet and how this planet had to be maintained. And only later with data did we discover that we were right now with climate change happening in a mode we actually, we have to really go back to a mandalic thinking. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And I think it's really important to remember that earth horizon as we're thinking about, you know, mandalic thinking and the deep uh, dependency, you know, I think of, of the well-being of the world in a sense in, our, in, in that mode of participation with the world, um, that we need to come back to that in, in some degree for me personally, it started, I actually ended up homeless um, when I was uh, in my late teens, early 20s. And I ended up living out in the wilderness in the desert southwest and camped in the wilderness. And um, the whole rhythm of my life changed, you know, over especially that year 
where I, I, you know, was not going to college. I was not doing all the normal things. I was immersed basically in the canyon lands and living very differently. Um, there's a lot of contemplation that I was able to do and, and enjoy music, but I also really began to, you know, study the native cultures there, the, the Navajo and the Apache in particular. And uh, I would, I, I first approached it just through reading, but I, I did, you know, sweat lodges with Apache um, individuals, and I, I learned from, you know, Navajo teachers or Diné teachers, and so there was an immersion in that culture. Um, I, I, I learned how to properly construct a sweat lodge and, and engage in different ceremonies, and um, that was really opening for me, and it really immersed me in this deep sense of, of kind of participation in life in a way that I had not experienced as a city boy. Um, and from there, I was able to go off to Asia, and uh, I studied in different traditions in, in uh, Korea and Indonesia, and eventually went over to India, where I met some Tibetan teachers, and first in Sarnath, um, I met, studied with some Tibetan teachers in Sarnath, but then I went up to Nepal, and uh, I studied with uh, Mother Tantra, um, the Maju, uh, and uh, Dzogchen, different bone lineages, Zhangzhung teachings, which just incidentally, there's a long historical connection between the kingdom of Zhangzhung and the Tibetan Plateau and the uh, Ir Iranian Aryans. Um, there's a big, long, long history there. But in any event, um, I found, you know, in the work, especially in the Mother Tantra um, and some of the different practices around sleep yoga and dream yoga, um, where there's a, a practice of, of, you know, again, envisioning the mandalic, you know, forms as the world, envisioning world as dream, interacting with um, deity forms. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're preparing for sleep yoga, you you spend the day accompanied by a luminous blue dakini um, who who basically stays with you while you go without sleep for three days and you begin to blend the waking and dreaming consciousness as you suspend sleeping and then there's a ritual form that you actually move into sleep um, with the help of circular process oriented visualizations in accompaniment you know with the surround of luminous Dakini female beings. Um, so there's this whole sense of like the circular process-oriented participatory um, immersion um, in, you know, in the fundamentals and the elementals of your experience and world construction. And for me, you know, that's an intensification of the kinds of uh, mandalic, uh, you know, participation that I experienced, you know, with the, with the native indigenous, you know, Apache and, and, and Diné um, individuals. Um, I, I, just uh, examples of some practices that were striking to me that um, I think there are different ways to look at like what's going on with mandalic thinking. And I, I want to explore a lot of dimensions of it, but one practice is you envision your body as like a crystal mandala and every one of your senses is a flower that's growing up from the root of rooted in the crystal mandala and every sense is like a flower. And then awareness is a turquoise-headed golden bee that feeds at each of the flowers. 
And so as you hear something, it's the bee drawing nectar from the ear. And as you see something, it's the bee drawing. And so you immerse yourself in that experience of this simultaneous buzzing of these multiple beings that are drawing nectar from every one of your sense doors simultaneously. And in that simultaneous process, it suspends kind of habitual ego orientation into a, I would say, a decentered participatory mode of knowing. And there's another practice where you visualize a net that surrounds your body. And at the every juncture, there's a little node. And on every node is a nude dakini that's dancing. And you surround yourself with this net and you begin to spin it faster and faster. And you visualize the simultaneous dancing at every node and the surrounding net moving around. And again, it evolves you in this deep kind of process-oriented experience where the, the self is decentered into this broader mode of multimodal, multi-perspectival participation, um, which I also connect to my experience in Indonesia practicing gamelan. Gamelan is described as a sonic yantra, where it, you're, you're basically erecting a mandala with sound and all of the interlocking elements uh, you know, and, and instruments the, 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 the ritual enactment of the, of the gamelan music is a sonic mandala, which a yantra, which basically, again, serves that same function of suspending habitual kind of like self-referencing ego function into a deeper mode of participation. That's where you can have gamelan music going on forever and ever. You don't yes. get tired of it. Exactly. It's exactly that way. Yes. How about you, yes, Layman? Um, well, I was going to say similar to what we were saying before about Hitler is uh, it's important that there is a wisdom about how this process can occur in a more benevolent fashion, because simply being um, decentered and put into a process uh, or losing your ego integrity, these could be very bad things for a person, or they could be very good things for a person. Just like, um, you know, if we deterritorialize and become nomadic, we don't fall into uh, the absolute absence of patterns, we fall into these uh, rhythmic patterns of the world in which we are embedded. And some of those are really good, but some of those are extremely problematic things that we escaped through culture and through the history of the events. So we need to uh, have a wisdom about how mandalic experience is used in order to get um, the benevolent results and not to just have a collapse from culture and development into the endless circle of nature's darkness. I could just add that some of these experiences are very similar to the ones that I have had on psychedelics too, but we should keep in mind that psychedelics is often a shortcut and, and it can be very powerful and very intense, but it's less controlled than these environments are. You for, of course, when you meditate or contemplate and you, you spend time saying a tantric monastery to get to these experiences as that. And also they're less, they're less, um, they tend to be less ingrained in, in the overall experience. So what you do, for example, when you drink ayahuasca in Peru is that you go through a cycle and, and the shamans plan for you. They plan for you maybe seven ceremonies over a 10 day period. And these ceremonies come every second day and you check in with the shamans in between. And then eventually you have them every day at the end of it. And you're very, very exhausted at the end of it. But the great thing is when you've done that cycle is that you can then integrate 
the entire experience. And you will discover very likely that you went through all these different stages, but not in probably the sort of controlled order that you would do if you go through this retentive practice, but rather you can then afterwards say that you got a map and on that map, you had that and that and that experience. For example, when, when Bruce described the, the crystal mantle experience, that is a directed experience. That's exactly what you hit it so right on the nail when you go through that. But you will probably discover afterwards, yeah, yeah I did have that very similar experience on ayahuasca. For example, you, you might be in the temple at night in the Moloka, and, and you might experience that this is one of the good nights, right? There are tough nights on ayahuasca too, but this is one of the good nights. And, and you realize, okay, I'm feeling really great tonight. I, I'm embracing it all. I can take it in. I'm in a mode right now where I can experience this. And it's suddenly like all the plants are, that surround you, like all of nature grows into the Malacca. You see daylight right in the middle of the night. You can see everything in the room. And the plants start growing into the bodies of the people that are in the room. And suddenly all the people in the room and the plants around you and all of nature and culture are intertwined with one another in a beautiful, beautiful landscape that you just can experience. You, you have this in front of you. It's, it's right there with you. And so you could see the world that way too. But it's, it's not the kind of, when you psychedelic, it's not the kind of experience that, where a shaman can tell you, you can now have this experience and tonight you will have it. That's not, that's exactly the problem with psychedelics is that they're not controlled in that way. The only way you can approach the psychedelic experience in a similar fashion, I believe, is that you, you're ready for a full-on cycle. You go through all these experiences, and it's only the integration that you can have something that's similar to what, what you guys just described. But it's another way of doing it, but we should, we should warn here again uh, uh, to tread carefully and, and to also understand that the sort of controlled environment you want to have when you have a teacher who really would teach you what you need to go through step by step till you get through these experiences and then they become part of you and you have a certain wisdom that arises with that. The only way to do that in a controlled manner, well, then, then psychedelics is only a possible shortcut. Yeah, I think that's a great point from both of you. And not directly in the communities I was practicing in, but right around me where I heard about it happening down the road, there were people who had psychotic breaks and, and, and other negative side effects, you could say, from this immersion in tantric practice that wasn't guided well. Um, and, I, you know, I've had people who were, you know, nearby me helicoptered out of the, you know, the city and, and, and eventually flown home for psychiatric help or someone who was engaged in the deity generation practice, but then couldn't turn it off. So they weren't able to basically do the, the fulfillment you know, phase, the completion phase of the process where you actually dissolve it to some degree, uh, you know, so that it, it, you realize that it's not objectively referring to every, anything. And it, it, it's also a luminosity, so it's not a nothing. But you, you need to go through that, that uh, completion phase to release the hold of it. And th that didn't happen for one young woman I knew who was then haunted by a deity form that she had animated that would not leave her presence. And, you know, so definitely there's different forms of imbalance and, and a lot of respect and caution and care has to be taken because this is deeply psychoactive stuff that you're, you're, you're basically digging in the roots of the, the world. You know, we live in a mandala of perception and you're digging in the roots and how that's structured and ordered. And, and you have to approach it with care. Just as when we were constructing the, 
the sweat lodge, I remember just I could tell briefly that story. A friend and I had decided we were going to create the sweat lodge. And we went out to the wilderness. I was living in the wilderness, but the friend joined me. We knew there was another homeless man out there who knew it, the territory even more. So we hunted him down and said, where do we find this kind of tree? Where do we find this kind of rock? And we gathered all of that and we built the sweat lodge and we're beginning to do it. Suddenly we look up on the hill and there's this guy with no shirt and long hair and feathers looking at us from up there. And he strides down and says, hey, what are you doing? You know, and it was an Apache guy who had seen our smoke. And uh, basically he pointed out a lot of ways that we were ignorant or kind of disrespectful of the process in the way that we were constructing it. And so he took over it for us and showed us how to move into it respectfully, how to honor the different elements of it, um, how to go deep. Um, well, I was, I was going into the process in a way that was actually overwhelming me. So anyway, he was there to bring in the actual grounded wisdom that we were as white boys playing with. Um, and that, I think that was really important and helpful and, you know, um, something that we need to, I think, consciously hold in mind. That's why, you know, that we're not engaging in, in, in just light appropriating play or exoticizing. I, I wanted to just refer to your earlier point there. That's why I also wanted to mention Slaughterdyke and his reference to the Sphira, the, the, the globe, um, as a mandalic moment in Western thought, so that we realize that this is rooted in our human history and not, we're not just engaging in exotic play. Now, and this is the concept that I call the barred absolute, that John Sade Krishna write a lot about. So B-A-R-R-E-D, barred, and then absolute. The barred absolute meaning uh, there is a certain bar at any stage in your life which you must not pass because you're not ready for it. So, for example, if you're a child, you're not an adult. There are a lot of activities adults can engage with that you must not get engaged with as long as you're a child. And only when you've proven that you're ready for it can you get engaged in those activities. Any culture we know has a barred absolute in the sense that we differentiate between child and adult. But we now live in a society that is uh, so obsessed with capitalism and commercialism that we're taking it for granted that everything that's out there, once you're 18 years old or something like that, then everything should be available to you, at least if you pay for it. And that has turned out to be disastrous. Mm. And, and uh, I think it's, it's kind of, it's really alien to Eastern thinking to think that you're ready for everything in your life just because you just turned 18. Actually, a lot of things you'll never be ready for. And some things you will be ready for sometime in your life. You might even reluctantly be so, but you should do it because it's your archetype, your personality type. It's your destiny to go into those things and make and have those experiences and, and then gain that wisdom that comes with it. And, and I think a lot of the things we do in our lives these days is like the kind of wishful thinking that we throw around, especially to our kids. And we tell them, you can be anything you want which is the most ridiculous statement ever and the biggest lie ever. You cannot be anything you want. And why would you want it in the first place? Why would you want to be anybody except the person you could be and then possibly serve others in that process, which is the most human thing you could ever think of. And I think this, this, this again, we return to the tribal pagan is again, very important because I've never, never studied a tribe or any sort of pagan society anywhere on the planet where the Bard Absolute wasn't an absolute fundament for its culture. And it had to do with your own archetype, your primary or secondary archetype, 
primary archetype being that which you should do, which really were you. Secondary archetype, which would be that which you could do if you really had to and nobody else was available to do it. So you had the capacity and talent for both these things. You should probably stay out of just about anything else except those two. And, and, and this is where we stretch the imagination in contemporary society with commercialism and everything. It's like, uh, I'm a great proponent and I work with a lot of transgender people. And I brought people into transition, especially, especially because I think it's a, it's a strong old shamanic tradition to do so when it's available. And we have more availability because of hormones and, and injections and, and surgery than ever before. But right now, we're now moving into a culture where we throw around something as important as sex, as if you could pick and choose whatever you like and move back and forth. That's a big lie. And it's creating an enormous tragedy with young, confused teenagers, both in America and Europe today. And I say this as a great defender of transgender people. I said, that wasn't the point. Well, bringing the transgender perspective onto the stage, like putting it at the center of the entire community, of the entire society as a kind of ideal. That, that's a bit like, you know, it's like we took the rock stars there before. They're also very shamanic. But rock stars die when they're 25. They're not supposed to be idols. They're supposed to be shamans. And that's a very different thing. A shaman is not somebody you copy. A shaman is somebody who talks to the gods on your behalf mm. or talks to strangers on your behalf because they're always at the margins of society. But you're not meant to be a shaman unless you are born to be a shaman. And very, very few people are. And it, 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 this is what I talk about all the time when I return to the Bard Absolute. So it's very, very important here. We go into these practices that you better be ready for them first. And you better have a teacher or a guide who's experienced who will then tell you, now you're ready for the next step. You'll be challenged to take that step. And then you'll go into it. And once you do that, you will discover, Oh my God, I wasn't ready for this three years ago. I was hardly ready for this three weeks ago. But yeah, I am ready now. I can take it on. And I really will immerse myself in that experience. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. We do inhabit an ethos of generic access. And that's always an inauthentic ethos because what's meaningful, and I'll bring this back to Mandalas, is always meaningful to the peculiarity of where you're at and what type of being you are. And there's a there's almost a tension there when it comes to mandalas and things like that about how we bring forward non-generic access, right? So part of it is a wisdom of tradition where some people can say to this, oh, we, we don't do that, or you're not that kind of person, or here's how you build a real sacred sweat lodge. And then the other side of it is very personal as we begin to have um, a life within ourselves that we recognize and can trust that is super peculiar to ourselves because the shaman, I mean, the shaman doesn't generically use the eagle feather to represent what all eagle feathers represent. He found this particular eagle feather that one day at dusk when he was in that particular mood and it has an ambiguous quality that resonates with his subconscious and he can then use that as a living piece of ritual mandalas and experiences that he lays out. But that feather is, it's just for him as a shaman. It's just for this ceremony. It's not generic. It doesn't apply to everyone. It's not what every eagle feather represents. So there's a, there's a way to do it socially where people help us figure out how we access what's right for us to access. But there's also an emerging skill for individuals to figure out what perceptions, what events, what ways of being are 
appropriate to exactly who I am, because those are the only ways I'm really going to plug into the universe. Yes, and this is what we call archetypology. And, and I would say you can't even do, say, psychology if you haven't done archetypology first. You have to understand what kind of person are you, what kind of environment are you living in, what kind of environment will you live in, and what kind of role will you have in that environment, how will you interact with that environment before you even do something like psychology. Because otherwise, psychology can never be anything but just a general idea of how the government is trying to fix you, to throw you back into system that you haven't even been able to look at critically yet. That's all psychology will ever do unless it becomes an archetypology first. So this is why when we talked about the Bard Absolute, um, when you do the intention with the shaman, which is what you do when you set up your Bard Absolute. So what are you ready for now? And what are you not ready for yet? The point is not what you can handle during the ceremony. The point is what you can handle during the integration afterwards. Can you, are you capable of making sense of the experience you will go through? Because if you can't, you'll go into psychosis and he will lose you. And to a shaman, that would be the ultimate disaster. That proves that he himself has started doing something where he has crossed the bar episode you should never have crossed. When I was in Nepal, one of my early experiences was uh, seeking out a, a well-known teacher there. And I went and, and met him in the monastery. And almost within the first five minutes of speaking to him, I told him that I had come to him to receive Dzogchen teachings. And he shot me straight through the heart with his eyes, this super fierce lightning bolt that just shook me. Um, and then he embraced me with love and gave me a gift and said, come back tomorrow, right? But he let me know that I had crossed that barred absolute in asking so nakedly for that teaching. Um, I think in the Tibetan tradition, they figure you're probably not going to ask for it if there's not some kind of karmic connection anyway, so that they're, they will hold it <laughs> in an accommodating space. But, you know, I had definitely crossed that barred absolute and uh, it's something we need to take you know, very seriously. And to Layman's point about, you know, the, the uniqueness of the feather and, and the, um, the ritual, you know, I, I think, you know, in, in talking to Diné people, you know, and the way that they, they're always encouraged to discover their own song. Um, they're always encouraged to discover, you know, their own kind of ritual forms. Uh, so, yes, there's a, a, a generic cultural style but it always folds back into how you uniquely enact it um, in your own mode of participation. So there's a, you know, a balancing there that uh, I think we need to be mindful of. Alexander's uh, invocation of the logic of capital, I think is really pertinent here because um, as capital becomes the dominant style of human interaction, um, it is inherently benefited by having the maximum number of options of everyone's purchasing, right? So the violation tendency is built into that system. It's encouraged. If you break more of those implicit boundaries, if you ignore the barred absolute, then you can purchase more kinds of things or be involved in more capital practices. And so then we we are all constantly encouraged by the background of the system to act in a way that's um, subtly abusive so that we're all violators and we're all violated. And so there's a, 
there's a background sense of being traumatized people that's created in, in terms of the sacred dimension by the capital system. Yeah, but I think that system also was only possible in a society where you had celebration of the infant as a foundation for the religion itself. And uh, there, are, there are other problems I find with, with the, sort of the structure of the West starting in the fifth century with the separation of state and market from religion itself. And, you know, in any culture, everything should be within religion because religion is exactly how we contain things. So anything that needs a barred absolute, there has to be some kind of religious practice or a spiritual practice around this. Otherwise, it goes all the wrong way. So, um, but I think what we had was that when capitalism took off the way it did in the West, starting in the 14th century, was also because we didn't have these sort of barred absolutes installed in our culture because we had, we did have, for good or bad, we did have a religion here called Christianity, celebrated, you know, the child born in the, in the cradle. And there was a certain innocence to that. And that innocence was the primary thing. And of course, if you then teach people that, you know, eating the forbidden fruit makes you a sinner. And that is something that has to be repaired somehow throughout history because there's sin that needs we, we need to get rid of before we then prepare to leave life. Then it's, it's like, so there was a perfect node first here and then everything was destroyed and then we have to get back to that node again. And that is what I call vulgar eventology. It, it won't exist within mandalic thinking. You have to first bring the event into the picture, but then the event becomes a break. So it becomes a break with what was good and that was bad. And to get back from the bad, you either have to work all your way back to where you started from, which is actually where you were an infant when you were a child. And or somebody walks in and dies on a cross. And because he died on the cross and sacrificed himself, you're forgiven. You can go back to where you started from. But this celebration of infancy here is a problem. And I think with capitalism, it's like like when you're born, it's like anything can be put on the market. But that assumes that everything that's put in the market is then readily available for you. And when that doesn't work, we just take a few things like, say, narcotics, and we bat it all together and declare that it's evil. And we put that in a special box. And it then returns because we're all confused about it. So the narcotics slip back into our culture through crime and, you know, the black market economy, et cetera, they slip back in. And they're again being used, especially by youth, who have no instructions how to do it, and they fall for it and they get addicted and, and they get all kinds of problems that you do not see in pagan culture. You have never seen that in the tribe in New Guinea ever. I've never seen the kind of drug abuse we have in our culture today, simply because we think we can contain certain things, put them in a box and said, nobody can ever do that. But wait a second, we just said at the other end that we're all born perfect <laughs> and that's it. When in reality, life starts, we're just infants. And the whole point with life is then to grow older and get more experienced and get wise and get old and then return your knowledge and your wisdom to the community and then die, hopefully, if you're lucky with a smile on your face, saying that I, I, I managed to live a full life. I was the lucky one. Fate was nice to me. And I, yeah, I gave back everything I had, everything I've learned. I gave it back by instructing others to follow me who were younger than me when I got older. And that to me is the mandalic thinking. That, that is fundamentally tribal to me. And we've lost it. So we were really ripe for capitalism when it arrived in the West because we're yeah, immature. It's very and, and interesting. Today, to I, today I would rather say that. Us vulnerable there, yeah. 
Yeah, I would rather say to me today, I am sort of pro-capitalism in the sense that we need to redefine capitalism as the biggest shit test of human history. And what it shit tests is our culture. And it didn't work. And we have to redefine it because capitalism will still be around. What capitalism today forces us to do, though, is to define what is sacred to us and what is profane. And anything that is profane today, we can put on the market. And we don't care who buys it probably either. Maybe we should have some regulations or whatever. We put it on the market. It's for sale. Whereas that which is sacred is that we all say to, us, to ourselves, I will never put this on the market. This is so sacred to me, I cannot put it out there. And only those people who train themselves to think of sacred and profane here can even begin in the West to understand the difference between Tantra and Sutra as well, which is another axis. Because otherwise they don't get the understanding of Sutra being that which you need to know to survive and, and take part in the community and be responsible and be a responsible grown-up one day. Whereas Tantra is that it's how to handle those forces out there that you might not necessarily need for your own survival, but there are there and there are available to you. And when you're out of curiosity and walk towards them, you have to go into tantric practice to be able to handle them. Yeah, the, uh, like, capitalism has a role. It's part of the mandala of society if that mandala exists, right? And that mandala is religiosity, as far as I'm concerned. If you have just, like, a group of people who believe in a thing, that's not really religion, that's a leftover from a time when society was arranged in a mandalic fashion. And that gives you the, the power as a culture to be able to help people define themselves, help people create boundaries between the sacred and the profane. It gives them the strength. We spend a lot of time looking at our culture and going, oh, there's something wrong with the economy or there's political polarization. We're not looking at what is absent that we would need in order to constrain those things to function as a team for us culturally. I agree strongly. Absolutely. I'm reminded in part of a critique of certain mandalic forms that, that Timothy Morton makes, but I'm hesitating to go forward with it because I was thinking we will do the critiques a little bit later in our conversation. So I'll check in with you. Oh, do you... I don't mind at all. Why don't you jump to Timothy Morton? I think it's brilliant. Please do okay. so. Sure. I, I'm not invested in the sequence. Go ahead. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, it's all a big circle anyway, right? So mm -hmm. um, yeah, Morton points to a, a sociological study that was done at one point where they asked people to represent their world and the the higher ranking people in society, they drew a series of concentric circles. The, the lower people in the society, they ended up drawing something more like a circle with a line that just like splits it in half. And there's this side and there's that side. And both of them are, are, are structures within a circle, but they're very different. So, you know, the higher uh, the lords, you know, the, the, the chiefs, the lords, they, they saw themselves as, you know, occupying the center of, of a number of rings. And, you know, the, those who were basically serving the system in a, in, in a very limited way ha had a much more dualistic and split way of, of holding that. And what Morton is pointing to is within, you know, kind of general, especially in in the West, but I think you can find it multiple places, 
uh, a distinction between what he calls explosive holism and implosive holism. And explosive holism is basically the holism where the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and the center is the most real element and everything else is peripheral. And that basically is a, 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 a general pattern of, of subsumption and kind of hegemonic control. And he, he wants to look at this from the point of view of what he calls the, the, the rupture of the symbiotic real, that in a world in which we really are deeply interdependent with many powers, many of which are non-human or that where can you can't draw such neat circles and you need to be you need to think about more ragged edges of interdependence so what he calls implosive holism where the the part is also the parts are also greater than the whole and that the the center is not the necessarily the most real element in uh what he would call this the solidarity of the symbiotic real, where, for instance, in any whole, it basically marshals the parts to serve the agenda of the, the whole structure, but it leaves a lot of the potential of the parts in reserve, untapped, because those reserves are not needed for the maintenance of this particular whole. And therefore, every whole. Uh, consists of parts which have untapped potentials that, when taken together, actually exceed whatever has been realized at the level of that whole. And that there's a freedom in that um, for potential, for growth, for learning. And if we don't recognize that in an education system, in a social system, in a cultural system, we end up with basically a, a, a hegemonic control society. Um, that doesn't honor, you could say, the, the deep potential reserve that's within every part that can overcome any established whole. I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I might be out on a limb here, but when I studied the nomadic tribes that I worked with, they have a center. Hmm. Interestingly enough, even if they're on the move, they have a center. That center is always the oldest woman in the tribe. So they call it something like the matriarch tree or the tree of the matriarch or something like that. And of course, later in history, we have the axis mundi. We have this idea that there's like a, an axis at the center of the world. And in the tribe side studies, always the oldest woman has that role. And um, that means that there's, there's a, what we call an inner circuit around her, which is dominated by women, which we would call matriarchy. Mm. And there is an outer circuit outside of that, which we would call patriarchy, mostly dominated by men, because men, because they don't carry children on their backs and they're bigger physically, they go further and they go hunting and, and, and they bring in the protein essentially, whereas women bring in, you know, the vitamins and the minerals and, you know, berry picking and stuff like that. And that's how tribes work. And they're actually very collaborative in a very sophisticated way. So, so there must be something here. When, when uh, Lehman talked about the pagan before, I call nomadological is that we lived as nomads for hundreds of thousands and possibly millions of years. So we're genetically deeply, deeply nomadological where we're on the move. That's why I use the word nomadology. It's like any idea we had of the world when we were completely nomadic and had to move all the time to survive would be a nomadology. And this is why the idea that we settled down, 
So some radical has happened. We do not necessarily have to move, at least not all the time any longer. We can go see my nomadic. Is the first event that we could really say, this is a break with history. This is no longer just the return of the same. So that's why I use the terms nomadology and eventology or process and event by comparison here. But it's interesting to see that there, there is definitely this, this idea of a center that is definitely genetic in us. And, and of course, it's because the matriarch symbolizes who gives us the first smile when we're born. Mm-hmm. It's not our mothers. It is the midwife, right? Who is always a grandmother or, you know, an older woman in the tribe. And she will deliver you and give you a smile. The first thing you see. And it's probably also very likely, at least if you die consciously, you know, with some kind of consciousness intact and you're not too demented or asleep, when you die, the last thing you see is the smile of an older woman or something like that. But this is called the magical gaze in the kind of metaphysics that we do. So the phallic gaze is something we're looking for throughout our life to establish ourselves because it's actually not there, whereas the magical gaze is something we do experience. And, and I don't know if this ties into Morton's work. You're probably more familiar. I've read Morton, but you're probably more familiar with him than I am, Bruce. But um, so, so there, there is a strong genetic pagan tribal component to the idea of seeing ourselves as a community, as a circle. And actually it's two different circuits and it has an androgynous element in between the inner and outer circuit. And it has a shamanic larger circuit outside, like the Pluto of the tribe. You know, the, the, first, the outmost planet of all of them around the sun is a shaman. Right. Yeah, I want to let Layman jump in here, too. I just want to make a brief response to that. Uh, in the Lakota traditions that I've studied, you know, there's also, and I think it's, it's much more broad than that, but there's also this definite emphasis on the importance of the center and the, 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 the hoop and the center and that to live, to walk the good red road, to, to be in, in right relation in the world, you have to have an internal locus of control, you know, both within the, the social structure and also within the individual. And a person who does not have that internal locus of control, if they enter into relationships with other people, there are going to be imbalances. Um, it's only from the internal locus of control that you have access basically equally to the full scope of potentials of the whole wheel. Um, the whole medicine wheel. If you're not centered there, then you're going to be basically maybe living from more from the body than from, you know, the spirit or values or emotions, or, you know, you can be centered and, you know, or, or lopsided in one direction or another. And ideally they speak about, you know, when you enter into marriage with another person, you want to try to find people who both are operating from the center of the wheel, from the center of the sacred hoop, and that way they can enter into whole relationships with each other. Otherwise, they're partial and instrumental relationships with one another because you need the other person to do something for you that you can't do. So there's an interest in a kind of balance and autonomy that at the same time doesn't surrender the participation. And uh, that, that sense of uh, what, what Morton is calling the symbiotic real, I think in these cultures, they don't inhabit the same universe where there's been the human nature split, right? So for instance, Morton is trying to address how we've cut ourselves off from basically everything else, human exceptionalism. And you know, for, for many of the indigenous tribes, every being is in a sense, a person. Um, you, you enter you a very different kind of participatory, respectful, reciprocal kinds of relationships with, 
with winds and mountains as well as you know snakes and tortoises right um and bears you know they're they're so there's that that there hasn't been what morton calls the severing um i think that's something that i'm, I'm interested in looking at morton talks about the severing and and the radical eco um, activist and, and eco-psychologist Derek Jensen talks about the silencing, both of these happening in, uh, you know, basically with the emergence of, agri you know, the agricultural civilization, where we begin to cut ourselves off and enter into, uh, from, from the nomadic participation and, and enter into more and more accumulative and exploitative relationships, instrumental relationships. Uh, I think what Daniel Quinn calls the, the culture of the takers, right? Yeah, we stopped making minotaurs. So, <laughs> you know, that's what happened. We'll be settled. And, but it, it still works in the deep sense that when I talk about exodology, I'm talking about the possibility of putting a population in a migratory movement because we're still nomadic deep down. So, but what you do then is precisely this, is that the point of the matriarch or the axis mundi you put it somewhere else, say in another country. And, and, and that's what you usually call God. This is where monotheism arises. So you say that God lives there or God has put a place out there for us and we need to go there. And only when we get there do we have an access mundi again and that's where you build the temple. Hmm. For example, all of Jewish religion is built on this. So the capacity for creating that center is always there. I don't hmm. know how that much that ties into Morton's work, but it, it definitely would make sense in that, in that way. I guess I think less in terms of the architecture of wheels and centers and more in terms of the quality of the interactions, right? Because there's very different ways. I think this is sort of what Morton's saying. There's different ways to do mandalic holism, mm -hmm. right? You can have a very natural way where the matriarch is there because people have roles and because we need a reference point in order to coordinate ourselves. And if we don't have one, in order to coordinate ourselves, we'll generate a center. We'll make a sacred spot that is the spot around which we can all coordinate to produce this additional quality that makes our lives worth living. On the other hand, there's this possibility of a, a dominator holism of some kind. But I don't think that's really about how we, you know, the totalizing gaze or the fact that there's a center or something like that. It's about the quality of the relationships among the parts. You can have a center where the parts are interacting with each other in a very, uh, you know, balanced, symbiotic, generative fashion, or you can have a center in which a, a huge number of the relevant dimensions of those parts are being silenced or excluded, right? To some degree, that's always going to happen. You're never going to have a situation which all of the parts are bringing forth all of their potentials. But the question is, what is negotiating the, the limitation, the creative limitation? And it's either being negotiated in a kind of harmonious way, in a functional balance relationship among these components, or in a very suppressive asymmetrical fashion. So I think we need to, we need to be focused very much on the quality of how the parts of the mandala are interacting with each other and not so much on the fact that there might be a danger of centers and mandalas in general. Oh, this is really interesting because this ties into the kind of work we're doing at the moment when we're comparing warfare and hunting. What I mean with this is that 
you know, my general thesis is that Taoism and Shaivism are wrong fundamentally, metaphysically, but they're still very valuable, is that they put the masculine and feminine at the forefront. We call it yin and yang, or say, Shiva and Shakti. I, Sadekis and I argue that this is the third installment. That's the reward system we're talking about, because the first one is, at least for men, or the masculine is to separate the priest and the king. So you separate your mind from your body. You separate them temporarily to then unite them in an embodied way, of course. That's what you'll need to learn early in the morning before you go hunting or before you go to war. But then comes the hunt and the war. And what's interesting is when we then look at hunting and warfare as two comparative things and we make a comparative study. So it, it's, it's not that one of them is royal and one of them is priestly. There's a war priest and there's a war chief or a war king. There, there's certainly a hunt priest and there is a hunt king, so to speak. So it's a different axis altogether. But when you start looking at that, it's a very different map. And what's funny is that when we think, for example, about a nation or the capital city, which is very clear in Axis Mundi, you know, where the old woman lives in a tribal sense, and she represents the future, what will be there the day you die? Because with her and her daughters comes heritage and offspring. That's exactly why men go back into the center of the tribe. They go back to the matriarch who they're terrified of, because if they don't get the approval of the matriarch, they will never get to sleep with any women. It's all about her daughters, right? So that, that's fundamentally how sexuality works and sexual ritual works in the tribes. But when you look at it that way, it's a very, very strict map. It's the war map. This is about defense systems. And that means nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, and then something explodes and it's called war. Whereas hunting goes on all the time. It has to occur every day. So hunting has to go on, you know, 12 months a year and every week of the year, every day of the year almost. So the hunting goes on all the time. So, for example, if you take the work of Manuel de Landa, the Mexican philosopher, he argued very forcefully in the 1990s, inspired by Deleuze, and he then later became a professor of architecture at Princeton, rightly so, you know, probably the best professor of architecture you could ever have. He's a Mexican shaman. And what he basically said was that we constantly mistake the capital for the harbor or the trade city. And actually what we've done in our urban landscape is that we created these different things. And I don't know if Morton moves into this at all, but certainly Delanda does, but it's interesting to see that if you look at the maps of the sort of countries we have today and the nation states we have in the capital cities we built, then we have these trading posts. And of course, the trading posts over the last, say, two, 300 years because of capitalism and massive economic growth, it's been the trading posts that have grown much bigger. So it's the trading posts, for example, of America, New York, and Chicago, and, and the formal cities are placed like Washington, D.C. So... We are, we are already mapping in our, in our minds, we're already mapping what would trade look like. Oh, trade will be over a large surface. It will be constantly ongoing. That's how hunting works. So the hunter becomes the trader later in history when we start settling. But the warrior becomes the engineer. So the engineer dreams about rising, raising this, this, the capital city. And you know you have these sort of almost artificial looking capitals like Canberra and Australia, Brazilian Brazil. You can clearly see that there was an engineer who became an architect and he designed the perfect plate on his place and it's almost dead. Like <laughs> there are highways everywhere with no cars on them. And, but whereas the trading post is often very, very crowded and much more alive in that sense. And, and I think these are models we need to look at today and sort of balancing them with each other. It's not that we need both of them, but actually in our minds, we're ready from day one, when we look at a map, we will automatically construct these two structures. We will have, we will have for our own protection, for our safety, we will look at warfare and we will therefore build 
walls around a community. They're called gated communities today. We build the gated communities because we feel unsafe if we can afford them. But the other part, which I'm, of course, a big fan of, since I love the Silk Road, is that we have the trading posts and migrations of people throughout history. And of course, this ties much more into the shamanic traditions. Right? The shamans will always encourage you that dare to go outside of your community, dare talk to the danger, dare trade with the danger, don't kill them. You know, it's like, that is what shamanic work is really about. It's like daring to go peacefully and, and, and creatively into relationships with other people rather than see them as enemies. Hmm. Are you familiar with uh, either of you, the architect Christopher Alexander? Yeah, briefly, yeah, sure. Yeah, why don't you explain it? Because the listeners need to know as well anyway, so. Sure, yeah, he's basically developed just a, a, a notion kind of, of, of living participatory architectures. And really what he's discovered is a series of, of, of shapes and you know, kind of symbolic forms, which I think are echoing of, of mandalic structure where he, he's analyzed, you know, um, city structures and village structures and the areas that are thriving and not thriving um, all over the globe from, from many, many, many centuries and basically kind of abstracted out from that particular pattern. So he developed a kind of pattern language that looks at what are the kinds of architectures that encourage flow and living interchange and circulation, circumambulation, um, interblending that create harmonious thriving zones as opposed to what you were talking about, some of the, <laughs> the dead um, platonic uh, you know, areas that, you know, I think also, I mean, maybe it's not related, but I'm, I'm thinking also about like what's happened, for instance, in, in the US, you know, as we've been taken over by highways where the whole country is now just divided by these tubes um, that, that, that don't really allow for any kind of interface. They're just these, you know, uh, the distances are so great and everything is so cut off that, you know, the whole interior of the country is cut off from these arteries. And, you know, the, it, it's kind of like, you know, violation of the, the patterns that are life generative that, um, Alexander is, uh, you know, exploring, Christopher Alexander is exploring with his uh, theories of, you know, pattern language and architecture. But there's yeah, my, a, my, po my point is basically that we can still build Stalinist architecture if you want to, but we cannot do it without irony any longer. Right. Yeah, right. but it could, it, could, it could be ironic and that would make yeah. sense though, you know, but, but uh, other than that, yes, we are, architecture has been revolutionized over the last 50 years and Deleuze has been the, the predominant thinker mm. here who's, uh, I mean, Deleuze and then therefore also Delanda's influence in North American architecture has been enormous. And, and that's exactly why we started building rooftops on top of, top of skyscrapers because we just wanted to make everything look more organic because without the organic element, it's not longer you, no longer human. Uh, the warfare hunting distinction is really useful, I think, because there are there are things that we need to do kind of top down construction for that aren't things that regularly occur. So there's a specialization there. But in general, we need to make structure operate around function, which is a Deleuzian thing. It's a, you know, it's a Wilhelm Reich thing as well. Right. Where where do you put a city? Well, you put it where people already go. <laughs> 
you you build the structure around the function that's a regular function now sometimes you also have to have some anticipatory structures for things that aren't going to happen regularly but really we have to in, in a mandalic sense be very attentive to the inter the regular interplay between the different types of things and then bring that all together in a structure and that's what a mandala does it's a it's a pattern structuring of sets of things that are in constant interplay somehow uh, there's also a kind of, uh, let's say, a geometric element to it as well, which is just how do we how do we experientially balance like the idea of a perfect triangle is one where we have the the same equal feeling about all the points. Right. And so if you have two things that you have to balance, they're going to have a certain co-weight together. If you have a third thing, then they're going to have a different weight. To me, my personal experience of of mandala like spiritual practice is. I'm working with bringing different subsystems of myself into equal weight, whether that's left and right, whether that's heart, mind, and body, whether that's experience of self and experience of other, of uh, harmoniously weighting these different dimensions in a way that creates a creative extra feeling. So I think that's, uh, there's, there's a real parallel between the internal mandalic practice and the sociocultural mandalic practice. Yeah, that gets at something I wanted to get at too with Slaughterdyke. First, I want to say in embryogenesis, uh, fetal or embryogenesis, we see the pulse patterns in the flow of fluid in the body before there's really fully a heart. The heart grows around the flow. It's not that there's the heart first and then pumping happens. The pumping is the, 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 the erection of, of form around the natural flow. Um, and so I think that's a really you know, powerful thing to look at in terms of like what we're doing internally and what we're doing with our cities. Um, Slaughterdyke, you know, with his whole spherology bubbles and, 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 and all of his you know, different kinds of topologies that he's looking at, one of the things that he's looking at is you know, immunology and co-immunology where the the spheres establish, you know, zones of protection and, and modes of interface that, you know, are more productive and healthy and that allow for thriving. And that, you know, architecturally, we, we have certain ways of establishing that. But, you know, for the individual, we need certain kind of internal practices who are, you know, hunters who are, who are going out and meeting you know, others in the wild and, and, and roaming across the landscape or the traders, we need a kind of, you know, internal psychoimmunology <laughs> where we develop um, resources, you know, spheric resources that allow us to move um, most productively and harmoniously, um, generatively in different kinds of spaces with the greatest amount of immunity. To me, the greater amount of immunity means the greater amount of possible intimacy. Yeah, this is what we call membranics. So we tie this directly to memory. So immunology here is that, uh, okay, you've had a really bad experience. That was bad for the membrane itself. And because the membrane itself, you, you got to have this sort of wisdom at, at the port of the membrane, which is what membranics is all about. So there has to be memory. There cannot be any life form at all without memory. So they'll have, they have to co-develop. I, I just want to point out that for people who read, for example, Niall Ferguson, who's a very popular writer these days, uh, if you read his book, The Tower and the Square, you also re return back to a we then in a deeper sense called warfare versus hunting. Mm 
So the warfare leading to the engineer leads eventually to hierarchy and that leads eventually to the tower and now Ferguson's work. And the hunting is of course flat and organic. And because of flat and organic, that's network. And the network leads on to the square. So if you look at say any city, you would discover also within the city that you have a tower, which is a symbol of power and thus a centralized power. And without that, the city cannot work at all, but the square has to be a large one and it has to be embracing of trading and communication between mm-hmm. people. So the term we've used for this in our work, it's a very clumsy term, it wasn't, but it's called pleurarchy and it sort of got stuck because archos in, in Greek is like how you run things and pluralist is of course Latin for, and it should be called, you know, you're mixing Latin and Greek, it's always kind of vulgar to do that. But the pluarchic means that the pluarchy is, is what you always strive for if you have enough time to do so in the sense that if you've got a flat network and, and things are happening organically there, eventually there will be nodes in that network that will organically grow from underneath up. And they will be the most trusted functions within that system. So people will stick to those systems and they will then stick more and more to those systems. And eventually that develops, of course, a hierarchy. But this hierarchy is a bottom-up hierarchy. So what you try to do when you work with anything is that, okay, we have enough time actually to see how this develops over time. So we do not have to install a guy in here who has a Platonist mindset and who's going to decide beforehand what everybody has got to do, you know, give them specific roles and it becomes like a Stalinist structure. But rather you could just say that, okay, let's just leave it flat and let's see what happens that comes out of that. And because that we will then see nodes in the network develop naturally. And then we've got to watch out, but these nodes eventually become more powerful. Then of course, what happens in any given society, we've seen that throughout history, is the nodes start connecting one another. And therefore they construct an upper class and they start to control the paradigm after a while. So they control that society because they have mutual talents that are beneficial, not only for the tribe itself, but for them as a group. And we're seeing exactly the same thing happen with the digital society today. But, but it's always when somebody jumps and, and tries to get to that point too quickly with their own mindset and because they, they, they manage through manipulation to get to that role. And therefore they like a Hitler starting stalling their fantasy of how things should be run. You get the sort of havoc that you had with Hitler and 11 years of Nazism and over hundred million people dead in Europe. You know, those are the disasters we, we get when we don't, we don't allow enough time to wait for these sort of bottom up approaches to actually work their magic. Yeah, time scales are really important here. Like you were talking about the shaman as the character who embraces the other and goes beyond the tribe. And that's something you can do when you have time to consider it, right? If you only have one second to process that information, then you go, you just recognize that it's the other and get rid of it or something like that. Or maybe your memory consists of things like traumas. And you've got to act on that trauma right away as a survival mechanism. You don't have the time to establish a mandalic experience. But if you do have time, then you should, right? So there are yeah. obviously emergencies sabotage mandalic thinking. And that's okay because there are emergencies. But what's not okay is that the emergency structures slowly stabilize and take over and undermine the construction of mandalic thinking and longer range experience. So you could have, for example, Gilles Deleuze's argument, and he was a leftist thinker from France in the 1960s, but he argued against the Marxists, more in the spirit of Marx himself than the Marxists, for capitalism, by saying basically that capitalism actually was a flat network, as people who traded one another, and then capital was accumulated, and then there were banks 
who started regulating this for the capitalists themselves. So the market could start functioning. Then suddenly the state arrived. And the state arrived through the merger of old monarchies who then realized that they could actually tax people and more or less tax them to death. By taxing people, they would then take a big cut of every trade that was done in that society and accumulate enormous amounts of wealth that was state systems. And these state systems eventually had to go to war with one another. And that explains the two world wars you had in Europe in the 20th century, for example. So, so it, this is exactly what we should be mindful, even when the plurality starts growing from underneath. It's, we always know from historically, historically speaking, we know that these sort of systems that develop over time are much better than the ones where somebody just fantasizes about a flat network and wants to store the tower and sit on that tower and dictate how things should work. That, that's even the Tower of ba uh, Babel in, in, in the Old Testament. It's just like, no, 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 we must not do that. But th th this is for society as a whole, that actually these, these, this sort of thinking makes sense when we talk about Slaughter Dyke and Deleuze, for example. Yeah, so can't. how do you tie this in with modalic thinking then? Bruce, <laughs> you want to start? <laughs> well, I was, I was looking to ask either of you really just in terms of, of higher order, you know, thought spaces in, in, in terms of, you know, philosophy in the, in the realms in which we like to, to move generally, what do you see are as, as modern um, expressions of mandalic thinking that are still useful or generative? Um, I know we've been talking about it some, but, you know, I, in the beginning of the talk, I suggested, you know, a uh, uh, circumambulation of perspectives or, or kind of a, you know, holistic participatory grasping of, of events and processual events. So um, how would you frame, you know, kind of current expressions of mandalic thinking now and where do you see it happening? Well, I think um, like, obviously there are a lot of communities where people are engaged in making uh, coherent big picture maps of reality. Right. So that's a very obvious place to go. But I think one of the ways we talk about mandalic thinking today is in terms of being trans pluralistic or post postmodern or any of these kind of odd terms that we come up with, because uh, the mandala is the ancient solution to pluralism to what we would call intersectionality to, to the diversity of the world. It embraces diversity and then it brings it back together. Right. So this is a thing human beings have always done. And right now, because we're in a situation where we are informationally and economically and technologically sort of shoved in everybody's face, we, we have this overwhelming experience of diversity and we're trying to take that seriously, but we know that it has a limitation. We can't just take it at face value. We still have to get culture. We still have to get a religiosity. We still have to get cooperation. We still have to save the planet. So that's that issue of how you embrace and go beyond diversity and a plurality, how you make a functional plurality. That's what everybody who's thinking today is grappling with. And mandala is essentially the ancient general mode of solving that problem. I agree strongly. And, and I would say that technology has made us global. We didn't choose that. There was never an election that said, do you want to be a global citizen? There never was. Technology did that and technology has established that. We wrote the book, we wrote a book called The Global Empire in 2003. And we basically said it was a widely misunderstood title. We knew it would be. 
but it was prophetic in the sense that we already write a global empire and we'll stay global forever because the technologies we have developed are genies that have gone out of the bottle and they're now there. So I think what's important uh, for us today is to realize diversity has arrived and will be with us because it comes with the fact that the world is globalized. The question is how much diversity can you actually handle? And this is where I want to be kind to people. And I, and I don't want to run around with some kind of moralistic codes and say that you must love the stranger or something like that, because you just end up having one stranger that unites with you and then you, the two of you, instead go after somebody else. That's why I don't believe in woke culture. I believe woke culture has a huge blind spot. That is it just finds a new object that it hates to unify itself. And that to me is incredibly dangerous. So, um, I would say we have different levels. We have family, we have clan, and we have tribe. And those formats of those sizes come naturally to anybody. You could hold any decent human being responsible actually for being responsible towards your family, a clan and the tribe, and people do want to be that. Then above that, what I'm exploring now in our, my work with John is that we're exploring the innovations of the empire and of the nation that came later in history. And here's where I get interested in the event part and the eventological part where I don't think nomadology in itself is enough of an answer because it wasn't actually out of nomadological cultures the concepts of empire and nation were developed. And empire and nation are the only formats we know. We managed at least temporarily be peaceful and develop systems of larger populations than the tribal size. And it helps with written language because with written language, we can create at least the idea that we share a language and more people than the people who just live, you know, just the neighbors. Because in reality, we speak dialects and we probably only understand a few people who live around us. And, and when we get further away, we understand fewer people. Because of written language, for example, with the English language that we three are using right now, we can have different dialects, different understandings, but at least we write the same way so we can understand each other. So the capacity for written language was exactly to, to actually have larger population being able to mutually understand one another. But we also know for a fact that there's no, been no establishment of a democracy in a nation anywhere in the world, unless there was a center first, again, tower and hierarchy, there was a center that published, for example, a daily newspaper, or had a daily television channel or daily radio channel, where people were listening to the same things and got involved in the same conversation. Now, the irony today is that as while technology is going global and clearly has a goal, technology is making us more local than ever. And when I'm caught into silos and echo chambers and all of these different folds that we're caught into that are more clan and tribe-like, so we're more comfortable with those, but actually we look at them that they are supposed to operate together in increasingly global imperial order. This is such a huge challenge that uh, we've, we've begun to understand it's an almost an impossible challenge, but the problem needs to be solved. And I think that is why we're talking about meta theory and all these things today is that we have a huge, huge challenge in front of us. And I would say even climate change and even, you know, nuclear bombs or whatever are minor compared to the problem that Derrida and Levinas and all these thinkers of the 20th century started addressing then, which is that after the Second World War, we learned this one thing. It's got to be fiendishly difficult for people to live in peace with one another in the future. And I'm sorry, but digital technology hasn't helped. It's even made things even worse. Not for the few people out there who are everywhere. They're the shamans today. <laughs> now, another place we see it is in art, which is, you know, uh, as part of the 
technologically driven globalization of the culture, we ended up with these so-called postmodern art forms, where some people like to say the essence of that is like an ironic or cynical distance. But I think a better way to say it is it's a juxtaposition of context. We get collage. We get a bunch of strange effects where things are put oddly together, which we see in memes and all this sort of proliferating digital juxtapositions. So that's the... Um, that's the plural diverse situation that we're facing, but we do see artists uh, feeling their way through that to create a mandalic harmony, right? We see uh, a David Lynch or somebody like that, who's constantly bringing a lot of odd, weird contexts together in a way that feels uniquely harmonized. And so, right, that's not being done in the cognitive sense of making a meta theory where like, what are all the categories we have to include and what do they represent? It's being done instinctively. But I think a lot of people are feeling their way forward to a, a mandalic meta contextual style of art. Uh, and I think that uh, viscerally, emotionally tells us something about the kind of civilization we need to build. Yeah, I, I, this is what I call everywhere, anywhere, and somewhere. So we heard about anywheres and somewheres before. Again, Niall Ferguson's terminology, but um, the somewheres are, I'm with people that they need to be somewheres these days. And then we have to realize that the vast majority of people are comfortable being somewheres and they, they have the right to be somewheres. But of course, it's more beneficial if you can train somebody to be in anywhere. But there's also the everywhere category that's missing in that analysis. And the everywhere category was always the shamanic mindset. And this is why we again go to the shamans today. We go to the people who are weird and strange and artistic and creative, but they're the go-betweens. And, you know, six years out of seven, you always ignore the shaman. You treat them like shit. You turn them into scapegoats. You spit at them, whatever you do, you know. And, and, and But then suddenly the shamanoid people are appreciated. Why? Because... Who are the people who can just naturally go to anywhere in the world, pick up a language in a few months' time and live there for a while before they move into the next place? Well, only shamanoid people do that naturally. And they're a small minority of people, but we are very, very much dependent on them. And like you just said, Layman, we will see them in the world of art. That's definitely where I put the most hope right now. It will be in the world of art and it won't be postmodern art. It won't be the juxtaposition of throwing things together we did in the past at all. It has to be something genuinely novel that comes out of this process. Yeah, I think both the shamanoid and the monastic people are those who dwell at the edges and in the interstitial zones and are uniquely situated to um, help us. You know, in, in the organization of beehives, um, there are, you know, the conformity enforcers and those who basically follow the routines, but there are also always uh, an element of the bees, you know, a segment of the bees that travel off in random directions anywhere um, uh, and roam more broadly because eventually at some point the hive is going to need the knowledge that they've gathered at those boundaries. Um, to, to let them know of other conditions and possibilities. Um, but one thing I was just thinking of in reference to something you said earlier, Alexander, was uh, Henri Bortoft and his notion of uh, the distinction. He's a Gertian philosopher and the notion of the, the distinction between authentic and counterfeit wholes. And we need to get much better at navigating and, and discerning the difference between 
you know, authentic wholeness and the counterfeit holes. Basically, any counterfeit hole is the hole that is represented if it's taken literally and, and not pointing in a sense beyond itself transparently. Uh, any hole that can be named is one that is ultimately set apart as a part among other parts. And it's never really the whole. The authentic whole is what he calls an active absence. It acts in and through the contexts and really is only intuitive or felt in the bodying forth of the parts, um, in the way that they body forth. And so the wholeness, the authentic wholeness is found in that milieu, not in the super meta systems <laughs> necessary that are trying to capture it or the super art forms that are trying to finally represent it. It's, it's a much subtler sensibility that we need to cultivate. I agree completely. It's a good note to end actually today because uh, that would be the very definition of a really good Hegelian cosmopolitanism. Mm. <laughs> That's exactly what it would be. So if you meet a stranger, don't talk about him or yourself. Talk about what none of you are, but you could both possibly be together. Hmm. Manic, tantric, Hegelian, cosmopolitanism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guys, I think we're creating our own little cult, starting with <laughs> of us, and then see what else wants to follow, you know? We start small and we grow gradually and slowly, and that's guaranteed to be the best possible quality of our conversations, certainly, yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's a it's a great birthday treat for me. So lovely to be with you, gentlemen. Yeah, lovely nice to be with to you, see guys. Alexander. Yeah, and happy birthday, Bruce. Yeah, yes, thank you. Yes. See you soon again. Yes. All right. Big love. Yeah, big love.